I really doubt that kind of money is what anyone is truly after, right? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, often when I, when I say something like that, like people rightly question me. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is someone who uses his strengths, gifts, and talents in a variety of ways to solve real problems for others and also to find some measure of self-expression and to earn a living in the process. I think it's the dream for many of us. Uh, his name is ADPNR. He's a family man, he's a seeker, he's a learner. He's also a three-time founder. He founded companies, some of which you might've heard of, especially if you work in the tech space, Cogsy, Convergio, WooCommerce. Uh, a couple of those had multi-million dollar exits. So he knows a thing or two about building and growing a successful business from the ground up. He is also a writer. His latest book is called Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. He's also written a book called Rockstar Business, another called Branding, and he's written a book of poetry. He's been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Startups.com. He's a native of South Africa, where he lives in the winelands of Cape Town with his wife, Jean, and their two children. I really enjoyed Adi's book and getting to know him better through this interview. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, AD PNR. You can learn more about him and the work he does at AD.me, which is ADII.me. AD, welcome to the School for Good Living. Awesome, thanks for having me, brilliant. Will you tell me please, what is life about? Oh, always with hard you know, questions first. Um, I think, you know, Brendan, for, for me at least, uh, and the way I currently think about life is really, you know, how, how can I, you know, you wake up every single day and just be the kind of you know, the truest version of myself? How can I manifest that kind of truest version of myself? And, um, you know, part of that is in that manifestation, I think, is the learning and discovery bits, right? As I think, you know, as I've gone through life and matured and just experienced more things um, in the world and kind of orientating myself and then you learn that those things and like the next day I kind of want to go out and I want to see like, with these new things that I've learned about the world and myself, how can I kind of just continue that pursuit of manifesting kind of a truer and truer version of myself. Mm. All right. Thank you for that. So, yeah, you're right. Starting with the hard questions, right? Like what is life about? Who are you? <laughs> this kind of thing. But I understand that you don't like labels. That's understandable. Uh, but nevertheless, you have three labels that you strive to achieve and make your own family man slash dad, entrepreneur, and writer. You say that those are labels that you've been striving to make your own for as long as you can remember. Tell me, tell me about that. How, do, how and why? I think, um, partly, I think partly when I think about the, the genesis of these, and, and this is totally me kind of, you know, reflecting now, um, I, I'm not hundred percent convinced that this was why, um, kind of why I attached myself to those labels or why I kind of decided to, to use labels, um, you know, when I did, but I think what is helpful with the label is it really focuses at kind of one's energy and attention. Um, and I think, 
to that extent, like all of those three things are kind of were at one stage, i.e., before I you know really became those things, um, were aspirational. So they were like you know focusing on that that thing, like wanting to be that thing, um, or wanting to use the label became that force. Then that kind of you know, focused efforts essentially to pull me forward, right? So I think like that's that kind of a part of it. And then you know for 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 the longest reason uh, or for the longest time, I've I've wanted to be a dad. For example, I I, I married really really young, um, at least in terms of the kind of modern age. I got married at the, uh, 25, 26, 25 and a half, um, and I had kids kind of shortly thereafter. Our first son, um, Eddie Jr., was born uh, a little more than a year later. Um, so, like, that's that kind of focusing, at least what it did for me, right? Is like once I wanted to do that thing, um, like, it really pulled me forward and I really went all out for it. So, I think that's where it's helpful. And then the other side, I think, is helpful as well, right? Which is um, when you use those labels, it is a simple way of essentially allowing another person to orientate themselves towards you right like it is at least a conversation starter um that's the positive part that of the, the reason i don't like labels is kind of everything else around labels right but um i think like those are the two two of the positive things that has um, kind of manifested for me with regards to those labels yeah you know this is something i'm i'm perpetually fascinated by because i know as you're saying that what we do follows naturally from who we know ourselves to be and the labels, like you're saying there, there can be an upside, there can be a downside, right. And there can be an aspirational component. There can be more of a declarative declarative component that this is who I am now, not who I'm striving to become. But one thing I wonder is how fully do you feel that you have, that you are those things now versus you're still on that, that journey of, of becoming? Well, I think like, I'm hundred percent still on the journey of becoming, right? Um, I guess the question then probably is for me at least is, um, you know, do you kind of, is there a seasons where those labels are kind of um, more prevalent, right? And they, they can, can you actually achieve a label? Right? Is, is there right. that level, like you reach level three and then you kind of you acquire this badge um, or this kind of set of stars and then that is it? Um, I think, and you know what? I think the probably the best way to kind of describe that is um, some labels are achievement kind of related, right? Like becoming a dad, not that, uh, not that being a dad is achievement, but like you have to do an actual thing, i.e. you have to conceive a kid or you have to adopt a kid, right? They're, like You can only really say you're a dad until like once you do that thing. But, but being in fairness, just, just to interject for a moment, yeah. there's a lot of people that do that, that then kind of disappear, right? And sure. they're not dads. So just having done that, is it really sufficient evidence that you are? Yeah, well, I, I really like that. I should have totally brought, I should have brought a, a whole bottle of red wine to the conversation <laughs> as well. Um, so, so you're right. Um, and I think like what you point out there is like part of that kind of, you know, I think the, where the waters are a little muddied, right? With regards to kind of what this actually, what these labels mean. Cause, and the best answer that I probably have there is when I think about, um, you know, kind of being an entrepreneur, I don't necessarily think about kind of successes or whatnot. I actually think about the mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about kind of how I describe that kind of entrepreneurial mindset or like what that means for me. Because I, again, like I think 
what I've learned is when I've gotten stuck, where I felt that kind of you know, the label of being an entrepreneur has been toxic for me has because has been because I ascribe or I attach certain value to other people's definition of what, what it means to be an entrepreneur. And like, I don't like those bits. I, yeah. if, if that's true, then I don't want the label. Whereas it's not true. Like we all define these things differently. And I think when it, you know, if it is then a mindset, right. Um, you know, another one that I can throw out there is I consider myself a, you know, a maker of some kinds. Like I, I want to be creating something, whether it's writing, whether it's business, um, I want to put some things out in the world. And that is more of a kind of a, a ritual, a habit, uh, a thing that you kind of thus never become, right? That wow. thing never becomes you. It's just a thing that you constantly show up, you do, you manifest, um, you rest and you manifest again. So like it just constantly is that energy flow. Um, and I like that more. Like I like that mindset more. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you've just said about rest and manifest. And there's this alternation, right? And I'm reminded of the thing Buckminster Fuller said about, I don't know what I am. I seem to be a verb, right? And this about, we try to put a label on things. We, we turn a verb into a noun, you know, this kind of thing. Like I'm an entrepreneur, not someone who practices entrepreneurship or yeah. is entrepreneurial, you know, but even then it's an adjective. So yeah, this is just fascinating. Well, you talk about being a maker and you have written a lot. You write poetry, you've written business books that are really personal growth, I think books as well. And this is part of why I was really interested to talk with you is you've had some significant success in the world of, of business and entrepreneurship. And as I look at my dad's entrepreneurial journey, my mom and dad have been very successful entrepreneurs and, and my dad died 12 years ago at the age of 64, I think he worked himself to death, prioritizing his work above virtually everything in his life for a long, long time. And you have, you've got um, a, a little bit of a different take, quite a different take, I think, from what he had. And I'm interested to explore that. So your latest book, Life Profitability, just even that concept is interesting because my dad would talk about work to live, don't live to work, yet you know, saying and doing, it's easy to say one thing and then do another. And, and he tended to do that, but your view of life profitability, I think is really interesting and valuable, very timely for our world at this moment. What do you mean? What does this term even mean to you? Yeah. Um, so the term itself, um, what I wanted to do is I think in terms of sharing ideas, at least is the, the ideas I think that kind of, you know, catch on and resonate with people is, where you're able to remix things that kind of people understand. And the, the book is primarily written for entrepreneurs or those entrepreneurially minded people, whether it, whether you're employed, you can totally be employed as well. Mm-hmm. And um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take the concept that everyone understands, which is profitability, right? Where you kind of, you take what you kind of, you, you get top line revenue, whatever income, you subtract the cost and you're left with profitability. But what I wanted to kind of do is I wanted to change the equation where, um, the question was like, how do I, how do I build a business that is not just financially profitable in the most narrow sense of the word, word, but really life profitable in the most kind of diverse, holistic, kind of widest kind of your way that I can describe that. Because I got like, you use the words there, kind of work to love versus, you know, love to work. Um, I don't like that kind of either of those, right? Like, because it proposes that the one kind of is like, it's like black and white, right? And like the, it's very binary and I just don't like that. Like it doesn't gel with me. And 
I think you know, work should just be part of life. Um, you know, one's ambitious pursuits, one's hobbies, the things that one creates, what one manifests in that realm, um, at least in that realm where we do need to earn money to pay bills, right? Is I think it's just part of life. So orientating one's attention to, to really living um, the most meaningful lives we can, like that should be, I think that should always be the goal, right? That like, and again, like age old question, what is the meaning of life? We should answer that question. And I don't think you find those answers by kind of exclusively kind of you building a business. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) Should should, should, should I drop my mic on the floor there? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, in fact, I think that many people, this is just one of my theories as I go through life, that many people attempt to avoid answering the question by building a business. Exactly right. Because it's... um, you know, doing those things are considered a, um, a social good, right? Like even you know, working 80 hour weeks, um, like people wear that with a badge of honor, right? Like I'm a hard worker. Like, look at me work. So kind of so, so many hours. Right. And it's like, mm, like we're not criticizing you for the really crappy parent you're being at home or really crappy partner you're, you're being to your spouse. Um, but you know, well then you working 80 hour work, your work week. So, so yes, it does become, I think that distraction and the worst part thereof is that it gets validated, right? Like the mainstream kind of, it says that behavior is okay, right? That's the thing that we've just accepted that this is actually okay. Like we're allowed to do those things. Um, and that keeps us distracted. It keeps us distracted from kind of, you know, all of the other things, all of what, what I at least, you know, call now like life costs that we are incurring, along the way, because we are so kind of distracted with this pursuit, this ambitious pursuit of building a business, becoming rich, whatever, becoming famous, being relevant, like all of those things that one might kind of, um, you know, attach to the pursuit of, of business itself. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, many books are written by people who have had significant success. And this is, is kind of a look at me, here's how I did it. You can do it too. It's a three-step formula or something like that. But this book's a little different because you include lessons from, as you say, 14 years of some failures too, right? And I'm wondering what, what can people learn from you without having to, to go to the school of hard knocks, so to speak, and, and learn on their own? Tell me about those failures. Yeah, um, so many, right? Um, the thing, like one of the recurring theme and so many of those is, literally my my inability uh, especially in the past i i think i'm better with you know with it today but um of being present in what should be the most important moment right now right because oftentimes um you know i think life is kind of magically complicated in the sense that there are kind of at any given stage during a day week month there are multiple interesting things that are attracting our attention for good or bad reasons and I think, you know, being, um, having the awareness in almost real time to be able to do that prioritization and say, you know what, uh, this is the thing that is most deserving of my attention, my, my true attention, true presence right, right now. Um, and having that clarity, I think is absolutely freeing. And I think many of those, you know, the failures and those things, again, like regret is not a word that I like using because I think... Um, it feels a bit like of a limiting belief, right? I, it feels like if I start thinking about things that happened in the past that isn't favorable, 
if I call them regrets or if I view them as regrets, like I, I think I'm going to limit myself from trying things, making new mistakes in future. So I don't necessarily call them regrets, but there are things that I missed out on, right? That I, um, that I now can never have again because there was a timeliness to it because I, in that moment, I wasn't clear about kind of where I should place my attention, like where I should show up as my whole complete self without the distraction of all these other things that are vying for, for my presence and attention in that moment as well. Um, and I think kind of, you know, anyone listening, um, maybe I'm just a sample size of one, but the, the realm in which that happened most often was, was in my home and family life. And that's so contradictory, right? Because I, I mean, as you said, talking about labels, right? I, I label myself as a family man. And um, you know, even with that, the aspiration has always been there to be a really great partner for my wife, to be a really great dad for, for, for our boys. And um, due to what, as I said, due to what is often that lack of clarity of where my presence, presence and intention is needed, I neglected them. And I missed moments. Um, and I, I think I got to a point um, in the recent past, at least, where I just decided that I don't want that to be the case anymore. Like, I, I don't want to continue accumulating that kind of that, that bad debt that I can never pay back because that, you know, I, I can I can delay addressing those things forever. Um, and I can accumulate all these other things in my life, money, fame, friends, etc., but none of that I can use to pay back the debt that I created with the people closest to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and how fortunate I think for your family, for you to have that realization when you're still pretty young, <laughs> you're, you're still pretty young. I think that's great. Well, let me ask you this. Cause you've talked about being mindful, being aware, practicing that choice. You've talked about, you know, where you're putting your attention and your energy. And so much of that shows up, or at least the potential, the opportunity for it shows up in our goal setting. And I was really intrigued by something you wrote about goal setting, where you talk about choosing goals that require you to prove something. Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about proving something as like a, a condition or criteria for which to choose goals. Because I think most of us choose goals because we think, well, that's what will finally fulfill us. <laughs> but what's this logic of proving something? I think, um, I think for, for me, many things start with a curiosity um, and ultimately a learning of some kind. And I think, you know, somewhere, um, somewhere in setting a goal, um, I'm ultimately trying to answer a question um, of some kind. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily, when I set a goal, like it might be a simple goal of saying like, um, what's a good example? Um, I w I'll use a concrete example from, from, from my past, right? So, but five years ago now, five years ago, I ran my only marathon, uh, first and only marathon. And um, I said, because I am the ambitious kind, I set myself the goal of uh, running a sub four marathon, which I subsequently learned uh, only 25% of people kind of, about kind of, you know, managed to, to achieve that. And um, for anyone listening, I, I weigh about a hundred kilograms. I know that kind of, that doesn't translate for everyone that's into pounds and stones and whatnot. Um, and I don't have your typical kind of run, runner's body. So running a sub four marathon was hard work, 
But in setting that goal, what I'm actually asking myself is, can I achieve this? Can I persevere? Like, can I be disciplined enough to do that? Um, can I work through the pain um, of getting there? Like all of those things, like there's, there's those questions. And if, if I continue down that path of asking those questions and I just ask that kind of, you know, why does this question matter? Like, why is this important? Like, why that? Eventually, you, I probably come to the, one of those bigger questions where I'm asking myself, um, you know, what does this say about me? And I think that's where kind of that you're proving something ultimately only to myself. And again, like I think um, I say that now for the longest time, um, I and I still do, and I still get into this trap. And I know when I get into that trap, I'm really unhappy, and it's really kind of um, a distraction from what I should be doing because I start wanting to prove myself to others, and I'm like, like I don't have to, like none of us have to prove ourselves to each other. Like I think to, in that realm, like we should only be, like we only need to be, and if we had empathy and respect for each other. And acceptance, like all of us would only ever have to be ourselves, unique, magical individual. Um, but on the proving side, I said, like, when I set goals, like I, I'm ultimately trying to prove to myself that I can find an answer for some of these questions that I have about myself. What a, what a beautiful perspective. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been exposed to some thinkers who will suggest the reason to set a goal is what you become in the process or as you're saying, what you learn in the process, where I think a default mode, especially for maybe a little judgmental here, but people in business schools who, I, who want to get a degree to, and get a good network and get a lot of money, uh, people who are focused on materialism, not that there's anything wrong with material goods, but that if they think that that will finally bring them happiness and they neglect this component of what am I learning? What am I becoming? Even what can I contribute? You know, how can I serve? Um, exactly. And, and you know what, Brendan, I think I, I often, um, you know, like, you know, this, when I go down this path of, you know, kind of, because what I want to say is, um, you know, money does not solve those, to your point, like money does not suddenly buy happiness, right? Like the, I don't think, um, and I don't think that's true for anyone, by the way. And that, like, I, there's very few things that I will say that are these kind of meant to be these global sweeping statements where I propose some kind of universal truth. But I, I, I really doubt that kind of money is what anyone is truly after, right? Yeah. And I think um, you know, often when I, when I say something like that, like people rightly question me and say, like, listen, you're 80, like, it's so easy for you to say that now. Like, you've kind of built and sold two very big successful businesses, right? Like, you've got money. It's not a challenge for you anymore. Like why, like why tell someone that still aspires to do something similar that it's not going to make them happy? And I think the, the key thing is just, because um, I agree with you, I, you know, money, capitalism, all these things are parts of the world that we live in. And I don't see those things changing anytime soon. And I don't think that they are um, fundamentally bad either. I do think, and that's, you know, kind of uh, with life profitability at least is I, I, I hope that it is ultimately a conversation starter that we can kind of start augmenting and evolving our understanding of these things, right? But what I do think is important there in, in that realm of kind of whether it's setting goals in terms of kind of you know, some kind of monetary achievements is just really being clear about what you hope for that kind of, you know, to, to mean for you, right? Because oftentimes they're like, people want the stuff that money can buy them. Um, they don't want the money itself. 
The money is just a vehicle there. And I think when you look at this through that lens, you could probably get some of those things at least in a much easier attainable kind of less risky way in which you don't have to incur all these life costs along the way. And yes, some things will still cost the exact same amount of money, right? Like if you want a Lamborghini, it costs X, you know, X hundred thousand dollars. Um, and like no amount of thinking through it in a different way is going to change how to get there necessarily. Right. Um, but even in that realm, like I've, I've heard like people saying like people that are into sports cars, for example, like fair enough, you might not be able to buy one, you can probably you know, save enough to rent one for a couple of weeks. And then like you had it and then you realize like, okay, this, this has been fun. Like I'll just drive my whatever other car, right? Like I'll stay at home, whatever the case is, right? So I think having that clarity at least and thinking through what is it that I actually hope to achieve and is there a less risky way of getting there? Because um, again, like the thing that we, I, I love this, um, Henry Thoreau said that the you know, cost of anything we do in life is just life right? Like there is that opportunity cost with every single thing we do. And some things we can kind of sequence and we can get back to. Other things, birthdays, um, you know, births, deaths, like some things are just moments in time and there's no way to ever repeat them again. Um, and those are the things that I think like we don't want to risk missing in this pursuit of these longer term goals that we set ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having that awareness, right? I'm reminded how much of this comes back to knowing ourselves, knowing our values, you know, and, and also having like, like you're saying about empathy or compassion that, you know, these things change over time. We're not static beings. We're very fluid. So being, I would say gentle with ourselves as some Buddhist teachers might say. Yeah. But I want to, I want to explore something that you just touched on a moment ago about, you know, now that you've built and sold two very successful businesses, uh, global technology companies for multi-million dollar exits, which congratulations, by the way, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Is, you know, in some ways, I, I think that you and I might be in a similar circumstance, right? Which is very blessed, a lot of options, a lot of privilege. And to share some of the things that I think you know, the things we're talking about now, the things that you're writing about, the things that I blog about, the things I talk about on this podcast about, you know, choice, what it means to live a good life, um, choosing our values, pri our prioritizing consciously, this kind of thing. I can, I've heard how people can say, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, that's really easy for you to say, you haven't, you don't live where I live. You haven't been what I've been through. And that's true. But at the same time, I, I choose to believe that there is a certain perspective that comes with that of saying there is an authority that's saying, look, if you think that being where I am is going to bring you happiness, I want to encourage you to rethink that and to see what you can do to find happiness where you are now. But where I'm going, where I'm kind of where I'm part of this, I'm just exploring, but part of where I think I'm going with this is you've also written some about privilege, right? And I'm especially in this moment, just COVID and cancel culture and what's going on in the United States, your country, South Africa, with a deep history of, of division and, and wounds. How do you think about privilege now? I think the hardest thing about it is, um, like even I feel super sensitive about it uh, to the point that um, I'm very careful in choosing my words, right? Like there's, 
there are very few things um, ever in my life that I hold close to my chest. Like I, um, I'm a very open person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Um, and when I communicate in whatever context, um, I, I'm just authentic. Like the, the same version that I am here is the same version you'll have if you shared a glass of wine with me in private. Like there's no, like in the same you know, kind of version of me would be in the sales call later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and privilege is such a hard thing because I think two things are true, true at least for me. The, the one part of it is that um, there is no way that I can deny the fact that I have been um, not due to my involvement necessarily, but I've been the direct beneficiary of privilege, historic privilege, right? And what we understand about um, you know, good and bad things in the world, but you know, with time, things compound. And there is a very easy narrative for me to say, listen, you're like, um, you know, all the way from, my, my dad owned a computer kind of a hardware store before the big box retailers came in. So, First, kind of, well, probably not the first, but at least in terms of telling, telling my story, right? Um, as a young kid, I had a computer in my room that I could tinker on, like my computer. Um, and you start connecting those dots, like from that moment and how that compounds to my parents putting me through university without study debt. And how that meant that kind of, you know, post-university, I took a corporate job for six weeks um, with the corporate, but Wu themes that became WooCommerce. I'd already been working on that on the side. And I could essentially make that jump knowing that I had a safety net. Both my, my parents, like they were kind of up middle, upper middle class, like they were safe financially. So I could fall back there. And at least I didn't have studied that, right? Like if I said, if my income suddenly went to zero, I didn't have mountains of debt that I would have to repay, right? And then in saying that as well, when I think through privilege, just the, like the, probably the biggest privilege in all of that is the, the freedom to not be stressed about the, all these things that I probably knew couldn't control, right? And I could focus and I could think and I could proactively pursue things that then created more privilege in my life, right? So that's really the one part of it. The other part of it is um, it's also become hard to have been privileged right and that's the hard thing to say right like because how do i how do i say in the the same conversation how do i communicate that i acknowledge my privilege and then i also want to say that this year it's hard to be privileged right um it's hard to it's it's hard to be classified as a kind of a, a white tech bro right and it's not untrue i'm not i'm just saying that that is also not ideal. Um, you know, in, in South Africa, you referenced South Africa. Um, I mean, I was, I was nine years old when we had our first democratic election. And, you know, a kind of integrated society is that's the only thing that I truly knew, right? Um, and then when I say integrated, um, I, most of my friends are still, they still mostly look like me, right? Vast majority. But I at least did not, as a kind of, uh, even as a young adult, did not experience what segregation and apartheid looked like. And I wholeheartedly don't um, agree with that. Like, I, I, I think it's, I, I, I'm shocked <laughs> to this day about how intellectual human beings made that happen, right? Oh. Um, 
But at the same time, it is sometimes hard to be a white person in a country where kind of where white people in the past created these laws that really disadvantaged other people, black people, you know, people of color in this country. Um, anyway, like, both those two, like, it's just, it's a hard thing for me to talk about. And I, I have actually mostly tried to take the, um, the perspective of trying to say less and listen more. I, I don't think this is my moment in time, for example. Um, like, I think even though I want to regard everyone as, as equal, um, I don't think my house is on fire at this stage. Yeah. And yes, I have challenges in this situation as well, but I don't think it's my moment. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Cause it's, it's definitely something that I think a lot about. And I think many people feel deeply, but don't necessarily know what to do about it. And on the one hand, I don't think there's anything mysterious, right? Because we all go through the day interacting with people and we have choices and there's some point where it's very human one-to-one, right? And then I think there's another potential where we can become activists. We can push for legislation. We can share a message broadly, you know, on social networks or in gatherings and things like this. But ultimately, of course, each of us gets to choose, you know, what we where we, where our responsibility is, but thanks for sharing that. Um, something I think a lot about one of my last guests, in fact, um, beautiful woman who's been doing work with indigenous people here in the States. And, you know, she's not like a rabble rouser. She's not in your face, but she just said really matter of factly, you know, the United States was founded on genocide and slavery. And even if, you know, even though that wasn't you, we're still, like you said, we're still the beneficiaries of that. And there's something there to come to acknowledge, I think, to come to terms with, to do something about. So anyway, thank you for sharing. Because well, we remain parties to the state's quo, right? Yeah. Like that doesn't matter how we got into this, but we remain parties to the state's quo. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let me ask you something that's maybe kind of on the other side of this, which is then what I would say comfort Right. I remember hearing an interview once with someone I admire quite a lot, which is Tony Robbins. And uh, he was asked, Tony, what's the number one most important quality for an entrepreneur? And I'm curious, by the way, how you would answer that. What do you think is the most important quality for an entrepreneur to have? Um, the, the biased opinion is probably perseverance. Um, but I actually think curiosity. I think, um, you know, that like true curiosity, like I just want to learn, like keep asking questions because that translates into so many different ways um, across the spectrum of like different parts of the machine within a business that you need to kind of, you know, to, to, to figure out. Um, but, but really curiosity, I think um, it's such a fa- you know, fascinating, both as a catalyst and also just as a enduring kind of, you know, force, if you maintain yeah. that energy, uh, that curiosity, like I, yeah, that's probably where I would go to. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I share that view. You know, what Tony said was his view is it's hunger. You know, this kind of unstoppable desire for something, right? And, and I looked at that and I thought, I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I have a lot of curiosity. I don't have the kind of hunger I think Tony was talking about. 
But then what I thought is, you know, because I've been to, I've had the chance to visit the Serengeti. And when I saw it, it was near the time of the wildebeest migration. And I saw lions after they'd made a kill and they're eating and the wildebeest are walking right by them, like 10 meters from these lions. They're not afraid because the lions aren't hungry. Right. And it's easy to not be driven when you're not, when you don't want something or you're not trying to run from something kind of like we talked about already. But I'm curious with your view, once you have achieved success and you have whatever proved yourself, you've, you've got the comfort or whatever. And here, maybe you've already answered because you've said for you, curiosity is a driver. How do you deal with having been successful? Is that, is that, is that a, is that a question? <laughs> yeah. Um, if it was written down, there would definitely be a question mark at the end of the sentence. Um, yeah. You know what, Brendan, I think um, two parts, I'll answer two parts, right? So I think, you know, thinking through success and being successful, I think, is also just about the evolution. I think, you know, acknowledging that in nature, like the world will keep spinning regardless of what happens, mm-hmm. which means that, um, like, I, I, I never think about success as a kind of destination, right? I just think about it as kind of um, uh, momentary status or state, status, state that, that I got to, and then the world keeps spinning. And um, the best way, I think, to, to tell that story is uh, in the following way is when I, um, with Convergio, my previous business, um, which got acquired about 18 months ago, in about the kind of the, uh, start at the very kind of beginning, right? When I left kind of with Eames, uh, WooCommerce, I left with this question talking about kind of setting goals to to prove something, right? I left with this kind of notion that I was a one-hit wonder and I wanted to prove, I would say back then I would say to the world, I now know that I only need to prove this to myself, but I wanted to prove that I can build another successful business. I can take all these learnings, experience, context, capital, all of those things, build another successful business. And then probably about 18, maybe 24 months into Convergio, we got to a point where the business was growing nicely. We were on the trajectory to be kind of reaching break-even within the business. And I, I can remember the moment um, where it just felt like, ah, I cannot tick that box. This is not as significant or as big as WooThemes was just yet, WooCommerce was. I mostly take that boss. I can build another significant business. And then as soon as I had that, what should be a really positive thought, I also had so much meaning just evaporate out of my life, right? Because wow. suddenly, like the reason I had started the business was to tick this box. And now I have a team and I have business and I have customers, right? And I am suddenly like, well, from my perspective, I like I've check the box. I'm, I want to check out. (laughs) And what actually happened is I had to rethink that and reimagine that. Right. And like what helped me in that moment was um, Dr. Dina Gluberman. She writes a book called the joy of burnout. And she describes burnout as kind of that thing that happens when the kind of meaning gets lost from the structures that you had invested so much in. Mm -hmm. So and I love that. And like in that moment in, in Convergio, like I had to start thinking through kind of how do I create new meaning? 
where, because the business was still there, like that was the structure that I invested in. I just had to find new meaning. And in finding that meaning, that's when my team and I started chatting more about how do we build the business? And we eventually stumbled onto communicating our culture as being life and family first, which is ultimately the predecessor to me writing Life Profitability. That's also kind of that testing ground. So that's the first part of kind of me saying is when I think about success is you, you reach that state and then things evolve, the world evolves and like you have a choice, like, are you going to kind of you know, evolve again and figure that kind of out what that next journey, your part of the journey needs to look like. And the other part of what I want to share here is uh, I recently started working on a new software business and um, I've not yet found the meaning in what I'm doing. And that's created a lot of friction for me personally, right? Because again, like the structure is there. And I know that there is meaning in, in parts of this, but I'm not, if you ask me right now, right now, like, why do I do, you know, why did I decide to do, do this again? Probably give you things like, well, I'm a maker. I like building teams. Um, and all those things are true. But it's not at that point where um, it hasn't come without, without those uncomfortable moments, right? And the reason I share that is I'm just, I know that I'm also just in that moment in my journey where I'm, evolving again and I'm figuring out this again and I don't need the answer right now but I know that I need to continue working towards finding that answer again yeah what what an amazing awareness right to know that and I think this is something that I feel like I grapple with which is the balance for me it feels like the balance of the head and the heart because you know as we know Simon Sinek and we can be very intellectual on what's our why and so forth but at the end of the day we're emotional beings, you know, and how to, how to balance that or what to do with it. Once we sense some kind of an awareness, you know, like, Hey, I haven't totally found the meaning here yet, you know, and then is it ours to find or to create, you know, to declare and then live into, uh, ultimately, again, I think these are pretty, pretty deep and important questions, but very individual ones. Yeah. And I, what I, um, I'm, I'm not a big gamer. Um, but I love, I, I used to play more games as a, as a kid, right? Um, and in the strategy games, you always had the kind of the fog of war, right? On the map. And you had to explore, kind of go into the darkness to lift the fog of war so that you could see kind of the landscape and you could see what is there. And sometimes the enemy lay there waiting, right? And I think um, in that regard, like the, I totally think it's possible to kind of artificially kind of create that meaning. Right. And I think the challenge there is to really like, once you come up with a narrative about what that meaning is to really kind of, you know, stress test it against the values that you have for yourself or have identified and make sure that there is alignment there. Right. But I still believe that these things are mostly an exploration, like the way to lift the fog of war, the way to build the vocabulary around kind of who you are, what you value um, is like, I think it is a, it is an action, right? In that sense, like it, it, it is not a thought experiment. I think it is an action. I think we learn by doing, we, we, we learn ultimately by putting ourselves out there, even if it is kind of intellectually in a conversation with someone else, like you and I are having, right? Like this conversation kind of in beautiful ways starts lifting a fog of war, even if we don't, not even aware of it, right? Yeah. Even if it comes like a week later, I'm like, ah, you know what, in that like, chat, the brilliant I had, like there's this little light bulb moment. 
Um, so I think it is doing, right? I don't think it is just sit, sit in a room, like isolate, be independent. Yeah. And again, like I think, I think you're spot on. We should be careful about then taking those realizations and then constructing a narrative just because we're creative kind of your people that can do those things. Yeah. Um, we should totally stress that back again with what we at least understand already, right? That's not the realization part, but the part that is, again, like values. I think values are the things that you've been aware of for more than three minutes, right? Yeah. Um, like those things that have just, you know, been with you for, for a longer amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious too, you mentioned something about team building and uh, this is, I think, an essential part of building a successful anything. <laughs> you know, there's only so much any one of us can do so much talent we have, skill, energy, knowledge, like all that. What have you learned about building successful teams? Um, probably the biggest counter lesson to, to, to anything else that I will say that doesn't sound ide ideological is, um, I think, you know, even the, uh, even the most independent kind of person that loves working autonomously, they, they want some structure, right? Yes, they want ownership, but they also want to be held accountable. And I think in all those things, in, in the way we build our teams, um, we need to make sure that we are creating um, creating our equilibrium. I, wanna, I don't want to use the word balance, but essentially kind of you know, both sides of that equ equation at all times. Um, that was definitely kind of a, a big lesson for me. And I, I, I really only got to it much, much later, right? Like doing the kind of the, um, the typical kind of corporate formal stuff, right? Around kind of, and again, I'm not very process driven. I, I, I didn't care much for KPIs and such acronyms. Um, but I acknowledge that like, to truly build a great team, you also need part of that, right? Like I think um, there is a way to have that conversation around metrics, for example, around being measured, around performance that is important. But most of me kind of, you know, fall, I fall in the kind of ideological realm where I believe that if you can find a diverse group of smart individuals that are mostly aligned with kind of a bunch of shared values that the group kind of, you know, you know is clear about, then all you really want is you want that smart person to pitch up, show up at work as their whole selves. And then they should just be like magically unique, right? I think that's like, literally, if I think about kind of your atoms, like just magically kind of, and, and I always think about um, Alan Watts and how like, whenever he describes atoms, he goes, boobity bobbity boo. And like really kind of in the most airy, fairy, beautiful, playful manner. But I think when we do that, um, like that as those atoms kind of bounce against each other and interact, that's how we create resilience and robustness, but that's also how we spark kind of magic, right? And the outcomes that we want to achieve. So, and I think that happens in, is one needs to create space to do that. And I think the interesting thing about that is that structure and boundaries actually create space. It doesn't limit it. If you can do it in a way that, if you, if, if you think about, um, this is gonna sound completely left field, right? But if you consider any kind of you know, intimate interaction with another human being, right? 
um, most people get themselves into trouble with their play partners because they it kind of you know, encroach on boundaries, right? And then by doing that, they are not getting the thing that they actually want. Whereas if you can kind of create the kind of your know, boundaries and kind of or not even create, just accept the boundaries and be clear about what those you know, are, it actually creates that safe space where someone is more comfortable with being themselves, right? Which is in your favor as well. So, and that's the way I think about kind of creating space by instilling structure, process, those kind of things. I love that perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, well, in just a moment, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. But before we do, uh, I'm curious if there's anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about. If there's any, whether it's any big ideas from life profitability, anything you're curious about now, learning more about, anything you've changed your mind about recently, just anything that you want to discuss before we kind of move on to another part of the interview. Oh, giving me a blank canvas here without boundaries, brilliant. Um, Yeah, just as you talk (laughs) about, right? Because I was actually thinking that when you shared about how creativity thrives with constraint, right? But Exactly right. Um, I actually think like, I'll throw one idea out there and um, I'll see whether you you catch it. Um, The Probably the most airy-fairy book that I think I've ever read in my life um, is a book called by David Dida. Um, and the book is called The Way of the Superior Man. Um, and it has a kind of, a, it mostly has a kind of very sexual perspective. I think that's kind of what the book, the purpose of the book was. But what it really did for me was um, it really unlocked my thinking around kind of masculine and feminine energy. And it really raised my own awareness about contextually when my masculine and when my feminine energy like is a play, right? And crucially, what I've learned about myself, like when you think about um, masculine energy, you think about the kind of the average male orgasm, right? It literally is point A to point B, right? Like you go, 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 release, and then depletion. Mm-hmm. Whereas the female orgasm like doesn't work in that way, right? Um, and again, like I trying to not alienate listeners by... Um, because I'm not a sex therapist or any kind of sex expert, right? But thinking, like, and that's a very narrow description of masculine versus feminine energy. But as soon as I start thinking about that, and I think about that in business, I also suddenly see where my ambitious pursuits in the past had that kind of very kind of hard grip to it, right? Where I was like, literally like, um, you know, trying to drive at 200 miles an hour and you're just holding that steering wheel so darn tight, and every bump in the road like feels like we're going to veer off the cliff where it's not actually the case. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas what I now understand, a big part of what I try and do both in my business um, and just in my life is that, um, again, I, by the way, I, I don't think masculine and feminine energy here is, has anything to do with gender. I hope that that was very clear, right? Um, but then if you think through the kind of the traits that one would generally associate with the feminine, right? Softer, kind of you know, kindness, empathy, like all of those things are things that I try and orientate myself towards um, in the way that I just kind of show up in this world and the way that I then pursue these ambitious things in my, in my universe. Wow. Now, yeah, I, I love that. I've, I've learned a little bit. I've read that book as well. And I, I've studied with someone that studied under Dative 
for 12 years, a guy named John Wineland. And I learned a lot about myself and I think I deepened the quality of my marriage. My wife went to the program with me and and so forth. And just what you're saying, you know, one of the ways that I, I think about that is that a masculine frame tends to end things. It's here's an objective. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to make it happen or whatever, where a feminine tends to open things and create and sustain and nourish. And, and this idea, which I, again, I know some of these things can sound pretty simplistic, but some of them I've experienced is quite profound. Right. Like I remember um, John would talk about the masculine, it's a masculine's role again, not gender specific, but when one is in one's masculine and we all have both. And at times it makes sense to put one part in charge. And at times it makes sense to, to really foster the other, but he would talk about, you know, the masculine is the master of time and space giving structure and form. But then the feminine is the creative energy that fills that space. And just how interesting that can be both, you know, for ourselves, for our work, for our relationships, you know, for the world. And, and I'm reminded too, I went to, I had a chance to visit the Amazon. And I thought this was interesting when the masculine role often seems to be to end things that in the, in the, with the Achuar tribe in Ecuador and Peru, that I've had the chance to spend some time with that the women will actually be the ones to tell the men when to stop, when to stop cutting trees, when to stop fishing, like when you have achieved enough that it's in that culture, at least it's often their role to kind of rein in that masculine force of go get it, make it happen. Really interesting. I, I, I love that. Right. And I think, um, cause the way I at least understand that as well, right. Is like masculine and feminine, they're all, like energies, at least they're always playful. And yeah. essentially, like, um, when you acknowledge both of them, you essentially remove the friction and they can just play and they can loop as, as different poles. That becomes a very natural kind of self-sustaining cycle. And I, like the way you describe it there is like, yes, you need that. Like we're going to, you know, kind of man make fire. But then, hey, guys, like we've got enough fire. We're okay now. Right. And that's yeah. just, again, those, those two different perspectives, two, two different dominant energies, um, you know, keeping each other in check in yeah. some way. Yeah. And Another how time. simple to right? even the image of the yin yang, right. The dark and the light and the, and, and just a reminder that in this existence, at least as we normally, like in, what do we call it? Consensus reality, normal, ordinary, like ordinary consciousness, that there is duality in all things. Yeah. And, not even necessarily seeking for balance, but maybe acknowledging when we're not in balance and then allowing or, or just acknowledging. Yeah, you're right. This, I, I don't drink anymore. I made the decision a few years ago not to drink, but I do suspect this is the a conversation that could uh, perhaps benefit from some wine. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Amazing. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and, and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. It's a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and stand aside. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a glass of perfectly aged red wine. Okay. Question number two here. I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Oh, um, 
I, not to be self-promotional, um, I think very few people agree with me that it is possible to, biz- to, to build a business and be successful and have a really meaningful life. Um, I think most people uh, believe that there is, a, there is a strong trade-off and the system is just set up in that way and that what I am proposing is completely unattainable um, unless, you are, unless you start kind of with millions in the bank already. So let me, let me just pull on that answer for a moment, right? Because I'm sure you're familiar with the, the four burners theory or the three burners. You know, this, um, there's an article, David Sedaris, I believe David Sedaris wrote a few years ago about this idea that in order for us to be successful, like highly successful in anything, we can only have three burners. And I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was like health, family, and work. And he's like, there's, you know, life is like a stove with three burners and you can really only tend to two of those three. So something has to be sacrificed. And it's this idea, I think that you're expressing now about there's this false trade-off that we must endure if we're to enjoy the success that we're seeking. Yeah, totally. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or phrase or saying or quote or quip. What would the shirt say? Um, be present. Okay. Question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Siddhartha by Herman S. I, 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 in some context, there is, um, I, I've reread it a couple of times. Um, and I read it the first time, probably five, six years ago. Um, and without spoiling it, it's just a you know, kind of beautiful journey story. And I often recommend it to entrepreneurs. Um, that's, it's not a business book, right? Um, but I like most often recommend it to kind of entrepreneurial friends. Um, really love the book. Yes. What difference has that book made in your life? probably acknowledging um, or being aware that, you know, as, as the world turns on its axis, um, like life and my journey and my experience of my journey, crucially, is also just cyclical. Um, and that I, crucially, I didn't necessarily have to pattern match. Even if I find myself in moments that feels like I've stagnated um, because it feels familiar, right? it's deja vu almost, mm-hmm. um, that's not necessarily the case. Like I'm still like with the right perspective um, and I think the right presence, I can still be making progress on that journey. Interesting. I want to know more about a term you just used about pattern match. I don't have to pattern match. What do you mean by that? I think, um, I think we live in a world where um, science where we truly value silence. So, so science, right? If you, if you, like, and I, I, I get it in kind of the kind of world climate that we find ourselves in. There's also a lot of distrust with science, but we've mostly said, and you know, kind of capitalism to that extent is more of a science, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where we said that, you know, the here's a formula to success, and we know what the formula is, and we're going to over like the way to get more out of this formula is by optimizing it over time, mm-hmm. and I. I crucially think that uh, what we've traded for that is art, right? Is the kind of the ability, the, the qualitative, the things that are more subjective. It doesn't have a formula to it. And I think when we 
as a result of that, um, I've gotten myself in that situation where um, just because I am on this new journey in a new business and I suddenly feel something that feels similar to somewhere in the past, even if that led to a bad outcome, I, I, I should not be connecting those dots, right? Um, and I think the bigger picture here now that I say that is like where that, you know, that's how I would describe pattern matching. But the where that comes from is um, that's what mindfulness like truly helped me do. Like the biggest challenge that I had was um, in in my most important relationship, in my marriage, I had gotten myself into, this is years ago before I got into mindfulness, but I'd gotten myself into this really bad cycle of telling a story about all the things that were wrong in my life and thus my marriage and thus with my wife. And I started connecting all these dots because I could pattern match, right? I'm a scientist. Like I am pragmatic. I've got a rational brain. I can do these things. And then <laughs> that didn't get me where I needed to be. In fact, that almost risked everything that was important to me. And then what I ultimately learned through mindfulness was how I should never connect those dots because they weren't as related to each other as I thought they were. Just because the sensation seemed to relate them doesn't mean that they were factually related. So that's kind of that pattern matching, connecting the dots. Um, yeah. Well, th thank you for, for breaking that down. <clears throat> I'm really curious about something you've shared there, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll come back to it. I know we're, we've got a few things to cover still. So we'll keep going. Okay. Um, so you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Ooh, um, probably my Kindle. Um, like I, I predominantly read on the Kindle and I like that for me broadly, like that's just the biggest the hack because I can stay away from my phone. Um, so from airplane to kind of being in transit, I, I, interestingly enough, um, uh, that's still the, probably the the biggest, one of my bigger challenges in life is, you know, I, I need to love the, need to love all parts of the journey. Right. And, and being in transit, is just not part of that. I'm, but there I'm very masculine still. Like I want to get to this nation. Yeah. Um, but um, my Kindle, like whenever I travel, um, I do a lot of reading um, in like in those in between times of not doing whatever the other purpose of, you know, for the travel was. Awesome. Okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I go to bed earlier um, on average and I try to sleep more. Um, I think um, the, my biggest unlock is understanding the, the notion of sleep debt as well. And that's like, I can't, uh, you know, kind of sleep only five hours on weekdays and then, you know, try and catch up on kind of weekends because it doesn't work like that. So uh, I definitely, I, I'm nowhere near perfect, but I, um, I know average is a solid like seven and a half hours a day uh, worth of sleep. Um, and it is a discipline because I, I am easy to rise in the morning. I kind of, I wake up between five and six. I, I didn't, I'm not religious, but kind of, you know, when I wake up in the mornings, um, but then I can like, I am also a total night owl, um, especially due to time zone differences as well. I have so many friends stateside. So as soon as the kids go to bed at eight, um, like it feels like the rest of my world is, is awake. Um, and I can be chatting with people, et cetera, until like 
late at night. Um, so it has been a very kind of you know, concrete discipline to say, hey, that's fine. Like all of that's good, but I need to, to get some sleep. Um, so really focused on, on sleep as a, I think as a way to pursue some form of longevity and in, in, in health at least. Yeah, good for you. Um, Okay, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Where South Africa is? (laughs) (laughs) I I would, like... Like if we really literally took like you know kind of you know, stereotype every single American, um, probably just get, get a world map. Um, I think um, obviously the states itself. I, you know people often, um, you know most states in the United States, single states, are probably the size of the whole of South Africa, right? Um, or close to it if you combine two or three kind of bigger states. South Africa has a population of about I think 60 million people today. That's context. But in surface area, it's it's not massive, right? Um, but I often um, maybe this is just me kind of being uh, kind of feeling like the rest of the world doesn't get their attention. Like I, you know, in the last year, um, kind of around the presidential elections, uh, it just felt like the states so dominated, kind of all of the airwaves. And at one stage, I got to kind of this point where I was like, why, why does the rest of the world care so much? But I would almost flip that. And I think that there is, um, you know, but part of what I think makes kind of the uh, America great, you know, really great, is that part of, like, listen, you know, we are America. We can do everything. That truly that American dream that, that the, I think that there's real ingenuity in that kind of what I understand about that at least. But I also sometimes think that it lacks that empathy for the rest of the world, with, which often plays out in that um, we've all seen the kind of videos where, they would ask the average person on the street, like, where is this country in the world? Just point yeah. to it on the map, like approximately. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just way off. Like it seems to be, a, some people at least have to have kind of that, that ignorance. So like South Africa was tongue in cheek there. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, I'm, I'm, I've, I've just alienated all of, all of my kind of American friends there. No, this is, this is one of my favorite questions just because many of my guests are not uh, United States citizens and, and I'm always interested to hear people's views. Clearly, we've got a lot to learn. You know, by the way, my answer to this question is how to speak another language. Because I think there's so much that comes from that, including other cultures exist, you know? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Um, the most recent one that's been significant is... Um, if you have the ability to de-escalate a situation, de-escalate that situation. How do you do that? Sounds easy. <laughs> I think, um, I think probably just that awareness, right? Like um, I, you know, when I think the tricky thing in relationships are, are normally the kind of the, the arguments, right? The, the, it's, it's the bad parts. It's like the good parts are the easy bits generally. Um, it's the kind of the bad parts that leave the scar tissue and wounds. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a key there is to, you know, like in the moment when a conversation is not going well, for example, or interaction or situation is not playing out um, in a favorable manner, acknowledging that, like, how, how do I short circuit this very bad kind of rabbit hole like loop that we're on here? And I think if, if I have the awareness, 
even at a compromise to myself to do something or say something that can de-escalate things, doesn't have to solve things, just needs to de-escalate things. And oftentimes that is literally just standing back and saying, yes, there is something important here on my agenda, something that is about me, but can I stand back for long enough so that the person on the other side of the relationship can just take up this space in a way that doesn't take us down this path of going down this rabbit hole? Mm. All right. Thank you. And question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? You can always make more. Um, I, that's mostly the sentiment there. And, and where this comes from is, um, I'll never forget um, an early mentor of mine, um, a gentleman by the name called Heaton Shaw. Uh, at one stage, he, Eaton was um, kind of, uh, I would say voted, regarded the, as the, kind of the most generous founder in Silicon Valley. Um, and I, I believe he still lives in the Bay Area with his, with his family. Um, and years ago, we kind of had this serendipitous connection um, at, a, at a conference and we got talking and um, I explained some frustrations and, and, and fears um, within one of my businesses at that stage. And he asked me like, but Eddie, what, what do you f- really fear? Like, what, like, what are you worried about? And I said, I fear this going to zero and losing all the money. Mm-hmm. And he actually said, um, you know, Eddie, there, there are two types of people in this world. Um, you know, kind of one of them knows how to make money and the other doesn't. The one that knows how to make money will always figure out how to make more money. And perhaps that's kind of, you know, thinking back now, that's slightly reductive to some extent. Like I, um, the bits about making money versus not making money resonates less today than it did back then. But what kind of, what has stuck with me is that notion that you can always figure out how to make more money. Yeah. Like if, especially if you were able to make money and kind of, in some way or form, initially, you can always make more of it. All right. Okay. And question number 10. So this one's a gimme. Uh, if, and I do have just a few questions about writing and the creative process before we wrap up. But in the enlightening lightning round, final question, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, assuming you're okay that they do, what would you have them do? Yeah. Um, what I love the people do actually is um, people that do kind of go through the effort of finding my personal email address, which is not that hard um, and sending me kind of don't kind of use spam me with generic stuff. Right. But sending me any kind of unique email, um, I will, I am very good at responding. I, I, I'm not perfect. Right. But um, I'm always open to having those serendipitous connections around certain things. Um, even if it's tiny and it's kind of, but I think, therein lies humanity as well. It's sometimes having, you know, seemingly frivolous initial kind of, you know, conversations or interactions even, not even a full conversation. Um, and, but without those, like, we also don't know what could have happened kind of thing. So like, yeah, yeah if, if someone pings me with something kind of you know, interesting and meaningful and that, that is related to me, like doesn't have to be relevant to me in that moment. Like I, um, yeah, I really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness. Awesome. Okay. And another thing I'll share here uh, is that as an expression of gratitude to you, AD, for making time to share so generously, so generously with me and everyone listening of your experience and, and your wisdom, I have gone on Kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I have made a micro loan, a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman entrepreneur 
in Kyrgyzstan named Erkin Erkinoy. She's 44 years old. She's married. She's got four kids and she will use this. Um, she raises livestock and she, she has some agricultural practice. So she will use this to continue growing her business, improve the quality of life for herself, her family and her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the initiative there. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. So the final part of the interview here, um, just a little bit about writing and creativity. So one of the things you, you referred to yourself as a maker earlier, that reminds me of the article, the pretty well-known article by Paul Graham about manager schedule, maker schedule, and about how any of us, every one of us has the opportunity to choose how we're going to spend the 1440 minutes we have in our day. And not all of us who have creative aspirations use those in a way that allows us to actually complete and publish or ship <laughs> our creative work. How do you think about and structure your time so that, and by the way, this was, I was reminded because you're so generous in inviting people to contact you. But as you said, those, you know, those, although there can be serendipitous connections, those are also interruptions and potential distractions. How do you manage your time so that you actually get your writing done? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing, I am generally, both in writing and general kind of work, any kind of deep work where I need to do actual work, i.e. not the kind of management stuff or not the kind of connection part of the things around it. I'm very impulsive, actually. And I tend to um, I tend to want to follow my, my energy um, in that, to, to that extent. Like I struggle with um, sticking to like a writing schedule, right? Which probably means I will never be a great writer. Like I like uh, part of that me acknowledges that, but right. Like I think, you know, um, you know, that's not the point. The point is I write impulsively and I thus write in spurts. Um, and I do my best work in that same way, um, where I can essentially, you know, check in with myself about where I'm at and in this moment. And when I say in this moment, it sounds very airy fairy, but I will often um, get stuck into something at work on any given day. And then I would make so much progress and I would feel so good. And I would cancel meetings, for example, or other obligation or shift things in favor of continuing down that path because the energy is there at that stage. And it's just kind of you know, seamless and frictionless. So that's what I generally tend to do, um, which means the other part of it at least is because um, that is in itself would be too kind of scattered to make any meaningful progress on any project um, is to at least then you, once I come out of that, kind of take that step back where I can essentially be still be very clear about what, what are the kind of actual priorities here and what are the things that relate to that? Cause I still need to ensure that I am making progress on all those things. Like I can't indefinitely cancel meetings, for example, in favor of doing this deep work stuff. But um, I think that's in terms of kind of, you know, how I write at least like I do that. So priorities follow my energy. And then the other part is, um, you know, acknowledging where, where I need help, right? And, and the help is oftentimes in either in unlocking some of the things that are in my head, right? So through conversation, right? Having some kind of, you know, muse or editor with life profitability. I had a really great editor that worked with me um, after the first draft of the book. Um, and we essentially kind of evolved that into the book that was eventually kind of published. Um, and part of that, as I said, was that unlocking function. And the other part was accountability there because um, we had weekly meetings in which we kind of worked through these things. 
So it created a bit of that structure again, talking about creating, you know, creating space by putting structure in place. Um, So, but I didn't need that at the beginning of the project necessarily. Like that was for the second half of the project. The first part was more free form and me kind of also not necessarily having a timeline. Um, That's by the way, like it's interesting um, when I create, I, um, and a lot of that business is not that, right? Like, there's timelines and there is a sense of timeliness. And I, I still fall in the spectrum like, well, we don't have to run at 200 miles an hour, but we also can't kind of you know, sit still kind of thing. Like, you know, there's pro- progress needs to be made. Whereas in the other thing, whether it's the book, you mentioned kind of me, me writing poetry earlier. Like, I love the fact that there is no, um, there's no time goal with regards to those things. Like, so I can just take my time with writing. And if I write three sentences today, and I write, you know, 30,000 words tomorrow. Like I never, I never did 30,000 words in a single day, but just like trying to kind of, you know, again, light and dark, like kind of uh, comparing the two states. Um, but I can do those things because it doesn't really matter. Like, cause the only person that, that progress matters is me. Right. Um, so anyway, that's, that, that's a ramble. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, I think the answer is I don't have it figured out. I don't have yeah. a perfect, re- yeah. I don't have a perfect recipe that, um, that I think anyone should, should copy. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I, I, I suspect that what listeners might find valuable in that is this idea that you don't have it figured out, at least as you're saying it yet you publish, right? And that's something many people aspire to do, but for one reason or another, they don't ever do. And there's so many things I realize people can take away whatever they'll take away. Part of what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that um, it's very individual. So we've, we find what works for us and you do that. And then, and then something else that I'm curious about, you, you talked about this a little earlier that you had written the book, you've written life profitability for entrepreneurs, but I understand also that a lot of your writing, you say, your, your audience is initially, at least it's yourself, you're writing for yourself. So as you're, as you're writing, what's your, what's your relationship to your reader? What's that like? Yeah. Um, well, and like to that point, since I am like, oftentimes I'm the only reader, um, which, which means these days I, I try to be very kind, to be honest. I, um, I try not to shock because um, words can like uh, words are harsh sometimes, um, so I try to be very very kind about the kind of how I share ideas, um, and especially around um, you know really I think acknowledging that I am just a sample size of one, and it doesn't matter how great I think this idea I have is or how strong my conviction is um, you know for this. I need to, I have to accept the truth, which is there are seven, eight billion, you know, kind of human beings on this, you know, on this planet of ours. And they might not share kind of, you know, those ideas or the conviction with the same strength as I do. As I do. And I don't need to, I don't need to be polarizing, right? Um, so really, I, I think thinking through that and through that lens and, it really is, um, you know, for anyone reading life profitability to that extent is um, I try to like empathy and writing from a point of empathy um, is, 
is really, really, really important. Um, my wife told me this last night again. She says, um, what is it? So Kristen Bell, the actress, um, she shares a story where her therapist at one stage told her that, um, you know, honesty without tact is just cruelty. And I think, you know, the, that kind of lens for anyone writing, for anyone sharing words, um, there is still a nice way of saying something. And you don't have to fall in the way where, um, like anyone reading, uh, having read Radical Candor, um, I fall in that ruinous empathy <laughs> but often with the way I communicate because I don't communicate directly enough. But I think there's a way to kind of when writing and when sharing ideas, when communicating ideas, that having that empathy about where you, where these words will find the reader and what impact it will have. And yes, sometimes I write to provoke and to inspire, but even in that there should be some safe landing, right? Built into yeah. it. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. What do you experience is the biggest challenge? What's, it, what's the most challenging thing for you as a writer and how do you deal with it? Uh, probably relevance, right? Or that we kind of the, the question of like, if I write this and I publish this, will anyone care? Um, and I still have that right. I think that you know, there's that imposter syndrome built you're, into you're, Yeah, you're human. Into that. I think that's all that means. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks for the kind of the, the right words there. I think that those are or better suited words here. Um, and I, I think, again, like we spoke about meaning earlier, right? And being clear about what, what is important. And I think when I think about the book, at least, is... Um, I I didn't really write the book for the world, right? Like by all means, I mean, I, I when I said earlier, like I want the book to be a conversation starter where like hopefully we can start, like the book contributes to change in the world, right? In some way or form. That is totally kind of true. And um, I'm not being disingenuous when I said that, but the primary motivation for writing the book, for example, was, um, you know, I think about my my own mortality often, and I, I have two young boys, they're turning uh, 10 and 7 respectively this year. And the book, as a kind of first goal here, was really to to leave those breadcrumbs for them, that if they kind of, if something happened to me tomorrow, and they could not get to know me with a more mature kind of vocabulary or experience with the world, they could somewhere, if they wanted in future, they could read the book and they can start kind of you know, picking up those breadcrumbs. Um, and get a better sense of who their dad was and, and what he thought about. And I think, like, not everyone's uh, the meaning or the real meaning of doing things should necessarily be that kind of. Um, it can be many other reasons, but that is the way to get beyond that relevance, right? Because that's not about anyone else. Like, that's that's a goal that I have, right? <laughs> that that like I've left the breadcrumbs. Um, and by publishing a book, it doesn't really matter about what anyone else will think about it, whether the ideas will resonate. Mm. All right. The last, um, I think just two last questions. One is about tools and technology. Let me ask this one first. What's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? My Kindle. 100% my Kindle. Um, I, I mean, contextually at the time, um, I now have an iPad again, which I mostly use for coaching, actually, uh, live coaching with the Apple Pen, different mm -hmm. conversation. Um, 
but when I bought my first Kindle six, seven years ago, um, I often got stuck into kind of when I was reading books, the distraction to just click this other app and check email and then go down a different hairball, which, which kind of too much. But the Kindle is so lightweight. And I think for, for me, at least as a writer, um, like being able to, like oftentimes books and other ideas, other people's ideas have been the muse, have been the catalyst for me to kind of get into this kind of, you know, stream of consciousness almost, and then kind of do some of my best writing. So like, I think um, reading more has made me a better writer and the single tool, the single thing that I've done to read more has, has been my Kindle. Yeah. The, like the paper white one. That's yes. A- like a, and and mine is six seven years old. I still have the same one. I've I've only ever bought one of them as well. Yeah, I, I love it. You can read it in direct sunlight. You can read it in a in bed. You know, exactly. that's awesome. Um, what what tools and technology make your your writing uh, easier or better than it would yeah. be if you if you just used a yellow pad and a and a pencil? <laughs> so so um, probably as a kind of segue from from the Kindle. Um, and a, I think it's a bit of indulgence at least. Um, but I, about three years ago now, um, also fascinating when I was at a conference, a tech conference, and I saw this guy drawing on a tablet of some kind and it looked fascinating. And I could see it was e-ink. It wasn't kind of, you know, some kind of Android or iOS device. And I didn't have the guts to walk up to him and say, listen, just tell me what this thing is. Like, like it looks like magic. <laughs> and I ultimately Googled this thing and I ultimately found what it was, um, and I bought myself one, and it's um, it's called Remarkable, um, and they've just I've got a Generation One uh, tablet, um, and they just released the Generation Two, and essentially what it is, it's a e-ink tablet, um, so very similar to Kindle, but the actual pen has a soft tip, so the tips actually wear out after kind of writing, and it has kind of it's the closest thing a uh, d- digital device that has that haptic feedback that feels like pen on paper. And I now do a lot. I do all my journaling on that instead of notepads. Um, And when I, for example, when I write stuff that I publish on my blog, I start there. And what is great about it is I, I can't write with my hand as quickly as I can type. But what it also means is um, I'm also forcing my brain to slow down slightly, Mm. which I think creates a little bit more purpose and a little more thoughtfulness about kind of how I'm structuring ideas, for example. Anyway, I, I, I love it. Um, and it has all the other benefits, right. Of like, I can get digital copies very quickly on my desktop and like it does kind of, um, OCR text recognition or kind of turning that into text. And, um, I, I use that, like, it, it's not perfect. So I have to do editing. Um, also cause I'm not the neatest kind of, I don't have the neatest handwriting, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I love that. Beyond that, any, t- any software that allows you to kind of enter letters into, you know, onto a page does the trick. Like I've, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's never the tool that's the challenge, even though switching tools that sometimes can create new impetus for kind of writing. I've definitely found that like different seasons where I'm like, I know I need to write a little bit more. Let's change a tool. Let's change the scenery, right? Um, and that sparks that. But it's never. It, it was never about the tool. Then it's just a kind of a, a change of environment, really. Yeah, that's awesome. What uh, you talked a little bit before about the editor you worked with and how valuable that was on life profitability. How did you find your editor, and what advice do you have for others 
who maybe have never worked with an editor or they've had a hard time knowing which one to work with? Yeah. Um, so probably the best, um, I think the best perspective to take on this, um, and I'll throw another book recommendation out there as well, because the, the, the concept is totally borrowed from the book, um, a book by Dan Solomon called Who Not How. And essentially what the book proposes is that um, most challenges in life is not a question of how do I kind of you know, achieve X, Y, Z. It's who do I need to achieve X, Y, Z. And I think just that, uh, you know, for the longest time, Brilliant, like I, I went through the process of thinking that I can, pu- I should publish my own book. Like I can totally do this. I know I can. I've done this before. And when I switched that to like, who do I need to kind of to really create the best book here? And I started asking around. I ultimately found I found a publishing house that kind of is, specializes in kind of connecting you with this kind of your muse-like editor um, slash kind of your part, kind of your ghostwriter to help take what I've done and just, you know, kind of you know, add that last kind of, you know, 20, 30, 40% kind of polish on top of that. Um, so I think they are out there. I think it's just a question of like being very clear about kind of as a writer, where your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and then finding, like literally just go out and find that exact person or company agency, sometimes publisher that kind of, you know, augments or complements those things. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for that. So final question I have here is um, what advice or encouragement do you have for anybody listening who's either in the middle of their own writing project, they're in the middle of their own book, or it's a dream they've been harboring for a while and they haven't quite started yet. What do you say to them to help them get going and, or to finish? Um, I would probably say share things sooner. Um, I think there's only so much that one can do with internal validation and that internal conviction. Um, eventually one needs to connect with our human beings. We need that feedback loop. We need that kind of high five or even critique it sometimes, right? Like we need that external energy to flow back into the process. And I think the hardest thing is like, especially if it kind of takes you a long time, right? You're writing a full book, right? 50, 60, 70, 80,000 words. If you're doing that kind of in an isolated manner, like somewhere in a basement, um, that is very hard. Like you don't have to, like you don't have to do this alone kind of thing. Um, so share sooner, like find ways to kind of share bits um, or share kind of behind the scenes stuff or share the journey, but in some way or form, um, just connect, connect with people. Now, I love that about share sooner and all the benefits that can come from that, right? Like the potentially the motivation, like we're getting feedback and we're seeing what's resonating, what's not, we're refining in real time, we're serving, we're not just waiting for someday. Like that's, yeah. That's really beautiful. I mean, I think like what I will add there, um, without going into the tactics too much, I think when like one of the very prevalent things that's popping up in, in uh, fair enough, like my, my, my business circles are mostly tech business circles or retail brands, right? But what everyone is saying is, um, you know, if, if you want to sell a product, start building the community first right? The sooner you build the community around this thing, this journey that you have, the better it's going to be. And I think your writing itself lends it like itself to that very, very well. Cause you, 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 there are ways to start building a community that you can engage and make part of the journey. So by the time you have that book, you have probably have, you know, in Kevin Kelly's words, you have that, you know, thousand true fans built in ready to kind of buy this, this final project because they've been invested in this, 
in ah. some way or form with their attention um, and feedback, et cetera, for, for a period of time. So um, think about building community as a share sooner, like even like um, the, the, what people in my circles call it these days is uh, building public, right? Like mm-hmm. warts and all, like within perfections, like you know, share the behind the scenes things. Um, you know, people are voyeurs to some extent, um, but just kind of you know, build in public and that's how you, you build a community for um, from where the kind of customers for the eventual product comes from. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for that. Well, Adi, this has been so much fun. I've learned so much um, from your book, from our conversation. I love, personally, I love what you stand for and what you're doing. Uh, I'm grateful for the chance to connect. So thank you so much for sharing so generously today. No, thanks for firing me, brilliant. I, yeah, I had an amazing time. Um, it does feel like we could go, you go on chatting for, for after the ages. Yeah, I think we could. Well, and I know there's more books in you. So at some point, let's do it again. <laughs> yes, 100%. Awesome. Okay, uh, today my guest, AD PNR. You can find him at AD.me. His latest book, Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to talk to you again sometime real soon. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated or you've gone through a divorce or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.